0: Well, as you all know by now, we are spending uh, Lent in Romans 8, this Lenten season, and we're looking at Romans 8 with a view to what has happened to us and in us because of the ministry of Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is doing in this glorious chapter. That is one of my favorite chapters of Scripture. Paul is working with those two most important questions in spirituality really and that is who is god and who are we and i suppose the third question is is how do we relate with one another on ash wednesday we looked at the last part of romans 7 where paul talks about his inner conflict about the war within him That part of who we are, as Paul describes himself and describes us, is that we are those who are conflicted. We are those who are literally waging a war within, longing to be whole, and yet choosing a path that often is a path of incompletion and unfulfilling striving to be holy, where we never quite ever arrive and last week we looked at more having to do with that second question or that other question is who is god that because of who god is and what god has done we are those who have been pursued in god by god in jesus christ and that in christ god has done what our religious striving could never do and bring us into relationship with himself and today we look at the possibility that rises because of this reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ, that there is no, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as Paul says at the beginning of chapter 8. The possibility, literally, of being transformed, of being made new, of being people who are in union with God through Jesus Christ, And we pick up at the end of last week's text in in verse 7, and I'm going to read just a short text today through verse 11 of chapter 8. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Lord, brood over the waters of our own souls today. Hover in that place where we can see and taste and touch and smell and breathe in the life-giving reality of your spirit. Bathe us with your love and so invite us to live new lives. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In a week where my uh, sermon title is Breath of Life, I've had the opportunity to kind of reflect on an obituary, quite frankly, (laughs) an obituary of, of a pretty famous person here in the Seattle area. His name is Dr. Leonard Cobb. He was the founder in the early 70s of the Medic One program and also of the program out of Harborview that helped bystanders learn CPR and kind of transformed emergency heart care in the city of Seattle. And he died last week. And there was an obituary in the the Seattle Times about him with a photo of Sue Nixon. Sue Nixon is Linda Crow's sister, Thad's sister-in-law. And I think it was in 2007 that she had a cardiac arrest in her car and and a bystander saw this happen and pulled her from her car, gave her CPR, and she was whisked off to Harborview and, you know, barely made it. But that CPR saved her life, ultimately, as is testimony to the fact that she has sung here uh, since that time. <laughs> and there's a picture of Sue in the paper of the day, the Seattle Times of the day of this ob- obituary talking to Leonard Cobb. And it also took me back to my own training in CPR in the the mid-70s when I was a lifeguard. We'd make annual visits to the fire station where the paramedics would renew our, our CPR certification. You know, I never had the chance to use it, but even on that awful pasty white resusci Annie that we would have to disinfect after each trial uh, attempt at doing CPR you know during those CPR classes it was clear to me that this was a very earthy bodily engagement with another you know mouth to mouth and and chest and hands and transferring breath and energy and leaving a bit of oneself As the rescuer behind in the one that you on whom you are performing cpr there's nothing distant about it you're there and engaged in a process that might be life-giving and as i said it's earthy and engaged and if you will i think it's a good description of what god does in that second chapter of genesis in describing, you know, there's two stories of creation in, in Genesis chapter one gives the detailing of what happens every day of creation chapter two is primarily about the creation of humanity and the story of the of the first human beings, but clearly in that description God gets his hands dirty. He's shaping mud and breathing life into this inert mass. It's not at all the kind of antiseptic flyby that God does in Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel representation of the animation of Adam, if you can, I'm sure we all have it in our minds, I didn't need to put it up here, but Adam is sort of, looks a little stoned, quite frankly, lying (laughs) uh, on the ground, a little out of it, but enough energy to raise his finger up and, and God is flying by and Michelangelo brilliantly catches the space in between their two fingers. And it's as if what we're anticipating in that animation is just a spark, just an electric shock, and God goes on his way, and so does that human being. I think the more appropriate description, if we're going to face into what happens in Genesis 2, is God giving mouth to mouth to Adam, kind of forcefully blowing air into human beings, animating what would not have had life apart from this engagement, and then also leaving a little bit of himself behind. And Paul in Romans 8, as with the first creation, so with the second creation in jesus christ speaks of the matter of spirit breath in hebrew and greek both the word for wind and the word for spirit the word for breath and the word for spirit are all the same word ruach in hebrew and numa in greek but you're never quite sure whether you're talking about what is holy spirit or what is simply the breeze that blows off the coast in the evening time. It's the same word. It's the movement of air, it's wind, it's that unseen thing that has power that's going somewhere and coming from somewhere and has real existence but also can't be seen. And in verse 11, Paul says, If the spirit, the breath, of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his breath, his spirit, that dwells in you. Somehow, says Paul, somehow in the birth, in the life, in the ministry and teaching, In the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, somehow in the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, God has blown his breath into humanity. And oh my Lord, do we have all sorts of explanations of how exactly this happened and when it happened and what exactly affected it. But what? Paul is saying quite simply in this text it's really the only thing I want to read today is this text If the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you he who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. That God has raised us to new life in Jesus Christ. made us new and open to us the possibility in this life, open to us the possibility of transformation. God has exposed as futile all of our religious attempts at being good. Being good and and right and complete and perfect, being all that he created us to be, he's exposed that as futile if it's only about our striving. And as Karl Barth says in his commentary on the Roman letter, he says that Jesus Christ essentially effected the impossible, I love this, the impossible possibility of walking after the Spirit, of living according to the Spirit, of setting our minds on the things of the spirit, of being transformed. Having and living out of an energy that is so much more than what we can muster on our own and becoming what and who God created us to be. And it takes religious striving off the table completely. And it invites us to rest rather In what God has done. Because God has done, as Paul says earlier in Romans 8, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, condemned sin in the flesh. It's really hard to explain. And that's why i suppose it takes carl bart 500 pages to do what paul does in 15 chapters because explaining paul explain it is a lot harder than just reading paul's explanation (laughs) and it's a case of what wendell berry says in that poem that i read last week by him explain it how you will The only thing explainable will be your explanation. Because the only thing we can do is inhale. I guess for me it all boils down to this. That the question of the journey of faith in God is not, how can I be good and what do I need to do And what supplements do I need to take? And what diet do I need to prepare and consume? And what exercise do I need to perform in order to be good? But the question is rather, what does it look like to be complete? And what has God done to usher me into this place? And how do I learn to rest in that? One last attempt to explain it, and it's another verse by Paul. 2 Corinthians 5, when he says, So if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Behold, everything has become new. For in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. As with the first creation, so with the second creation, the new creation, being true to himself, being earthy, involved, and engaged, God is breathing life into something lifeless and making all things new. Let's pray. Equip us with enough faith to inhale, O God, to take in what you are so lavishly bestowing upon us, and to receive the breath of life. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.